Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy, here with a different co-host for this month, Isaac Pravashi. Hello, Isaac. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Kate. It's great to see you. And thank you to our supporter, Borobox, our library app that lets you download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. It's great to have Isaac with us this month. He's been with the library team since June, so the start of the summer. And one of the things he works on is our monthly library newsletter. Read all about it. If you haven't subscribed to it yet, I can highly recommend it. Visit our website and subscribe today. Now, in this month's episode, we're joined by Steve Kavanagh, the author behind the character Eddie Flynn, the much-loved con artist turned lawyer. The latest in the series is The Devil's Advocate that came out last month, and it's already receiving some incredible reviews, some even calling him the new John Grisham. And we're also joined later by Michelle from Alton Libraries, who'll be giving us a new recommendation. It's been brilliant to see libraries filling up with visitors again, especially with more than 16,000 children taking part in the summer reading challenge over the holidays. If you've got a young reader at home, they still have until the 18th of September to finish the six book challenge. So remind them to update their reading record online to let us know how they're getting on. Yeah, and don't forget to include your email address so you get entered into the prize draw. We'll have more news from inside the libraries later, but for now, let's hear from our guest author, Steve Kavanagh. Now, Steve started his career as a civil rights lawyer, and it's only been with his latest and seventh full-length novel that he's finally given up the day job and become a full-time writer. I've no idea how he managed to combine working as a lawyer and as a dad with young children, alongside producing a bunch of best-selling novels. Yeah, he talks about the horrendous time schedule he had from when he was working full-time in the interview. Anyway, his gritty series of courtroom drama thrillers started with The Defence back in 2015, and that introduced us to his much-loved character, con-man-turned-lawyer, Eddie Flynn. Now, the books have been a huge success for Steve, gaining him plaudits and fans from writers like Lee Child and Ian Rankin. It's hard to believe that when he started the series, Steve had never been to America since Eddie's a New Yorker through and through. Now, in Steve's latest book, The Devil's Advocate, Eddie is out of his home territory and he's working on a death penalty case in rural Alabama. Here's Kate speaking with Steve. The interview starts with Steve reading a short excerpt from his novel. This is from the opening of The Devil's Advocate, and it concerns a a last-minute appeal against a death sentence for Darius Robinson, and he's represented by a lawyer called Cody Warren, and it's the district attorney, the villain in this book, Randall Korn, who is trying to have him executed, but there might be a reprieve from the governor. Cody Warren said, look, Korn, Darius had a lesser role in that robbery. No matter what way you dice this, he doesn't deserve to die, and you know it. He's still a young man. He can still have a life, and I'm convinced there's new evidence out there that's going to clear his name one day. Please just give him a chance, said Warren. His voice cracked and shrill. He'd been working flat out to save Darius Robinson from the chair for five days straight. Corn's expression remained impassive. That blank, dull face. He said nothing in reply and took enjoyment from watching Warren's eyes search his own, looking for an answer, searching for hope, holding his breath. 
No one spoke. No one dared breathe. Corn could stand very still when he wanted to. One of the other traits that made him seem at times inanimate, a portentous silence enveloped them. It was filled with possibility and dread, and Corn luxuriated in that ominous quiet as if he were bathing in dead water. And then the silence was broken. Darius took a breath. He inhaled deeply, like the momentary vacuum in space as the core of a star collapses, drawing everything inside its fractured heart right before it explodes. Porter held a gun on me after the robbery. If I hadn't driven him away, he would have killed me. I didn't know he was going to shoot somebody and rob them. I swear I didn't know. I believe you, said Corn. What? asked Warren. I believe him. And the acting governor will do whatever I tell him. I'll give him, get him on the phone right now. Give me a second. It will all be over. Tears began to run down Darius Robinson's face. Cody Warren's shoulder slumped as if 500 pounds had been lifted off his back. He looked at the ceiling, whispered a thank you to the heavens and closed his eyes. He had saved the young man's life. And right then, nothing could be as sweet as that relief. He strode up to the death cell, put his arms through the bars and held his client's face. It's going to be okay, he said. Corn got the governor on the phone. I'm here for cutting us fine, Randall. What do you want me to do? I'm inclined to commute the death sentence on Mr. Warren's submission, but I won't go against my district attorney. What's your attitude? Corn took a step back, admiring the scene in front of him. Warren and Robinson were hugging each other through the bars of the cell. Both of them were crying. I've spoken to Mr. Warren. He's very persuasive, said Corn. He's a strong argument. It's not easy to take a life in the name of justice. But that's why we must go through with the sentence in this case. A jury convicted Mr. Robinson of murder and sentenced him to death. We are dishonoring that jury and dishonoring Mr. Robinson if we allow him to live. No. Darius Robinson dies tonight. Thank you so much for joining me on the Love Your Library podcast and many congratulations on your new book, The Devil's Advocate, which I see has already stormed into the bestseller lists already. Yes, yes. Delighted that number six for the first three day sales. So on the Sunday time, so I'm, I'm delighted, really pleased. It's had such a great reaction from readers. Now, this is the sixth in your Eddie Flynn series, which started back in 2015 with The Defence but this time you've moved out of New York to small town Alabama. So within the States, it really couldn't be a more different setting. So could you tell us what this story is all about? Eddie Flynn hadn't done a death penalty case. And uh, it's always something I wanted to write about ever since I first started writing about him and the law and lawyers. You know, it's the ultimate drama having a death penalty um, defence. So there's no death penalty in New York. There's a moratorium on it. So I had to move him out of that state. And Alabama seemed like the perfect place. It's steeped in history. It's an ex-Confederate state. It's death penalty country. And it, it brings with it you know, all the history of um, slavery and oppression that's still tied up with the death penalty. So it, it was the perfect setting. Um, this book is about um, the devil's advocate, who is Randall Corn who is a district attorney uh, who is obsessed with the death penalty. And he's based loosely on some real figures from very recent uh, history. Uh, there are five prosecutors in the United States 
they're responsible for 440 death penalty convictions between them, uh, which is unheard of. Most district attorneys, even in death penalty states, might do 10 death penalty cases in their entire careers. These people did hundreds because they were obsessed by it. So the death penalty is very much driven by personalities in America. And that's what I wanted to uh, explore in this book. So Eddie and his team are in rural Alabama with a hostile town against them, defending a young man, uh, an innocent man who's accused of a crime he didn't commit. And the stakes couldn't really be higher because Corn wants this young man convicted and will break every rule to make sure that that happens. I was also really shocked by the scenario in the book that people aren't allowed to be on a jury if they don't support the death penalty. So before the trial has even started, the jury is going to be weighted against the person on trial. Was this just a plot device for the book or is this really something that happens in the US? No, it's absolutely true. In order to serve on a jury, uh, and and that's part of, of Alabama, you have to be death qualified which means you cannot be a total objector to the death penalty. You have to be willing, if this person is convicted, to send them to their death. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't be on the jury. Um, So that's absolutely true. All of the legal stuff that's in the book, as shocking as it may be, is 100% accurate. So the way that works is statistically, it rules out lots of different um, people who object to the death penalty. So most women most African-Americans, Catholics. Uh, So what you have are, you know, your jury pool is largely consists of, you know, white male Protestants. Um, And in Alabama, they're going to be quite right-wing and Republican, most of them. So it's not a jury of your peers that you can expect if you're accused of murder. Plus, the whole voir dire, the whole jury selection process is focused on this. It's not focused on, is this person innocent or guilty? The jury is being asked all the time, can you kill this person? Mm. And that has a psychological effect on them. They're, they're, they're primed for this. They're not thinking in terms of innocence or, or guilt. They're thinking, can I kill this man? Yes, I can. Mm. And that is the, that's before the trial even starts. Now, I, I was fascinated to hear that when you started the Eddie Flynn series, you would never actually been to New York. Um, So in a very broad sense, could you tell us a bit about why you chose to set your books in the States rather than in the UK or Ireland? Well, I've always loved American crime fiction. That's my my real love. Um, And that, you know, that started when I was a wee boy, you know, watching Hill Street Blues and Starsky and Hutch on TV. And I loved American shows. I just loved America. You know, the cars were bigger in these huge cities and just that it looked like an amazing place. Everyone was clean and had good teeth. It was it was a fascinating prospect. Um, so that was kind of my obsession. And when I came time to write my own fiction, I wanted to. I thought I could say something about lawyers that really wasn't out there too much in the world. And uh, I had an idea for this character, and it didn't suit being being set in the UK. I wanted to write high-concept, fast-paced, exciting, thrilling, slick thriller. And that wouldn't work if my main character had to wear a wig and a funny gown. It just wouldn't have worked. It would have been a comedy. I love British you know, uh, crime dramas and legal dramas especially. I'm a huge rum pull of the Bailey fan. John Mortimer's fantastic series. But that works best as comedy or satire, I think, through the nature of that whole setup. 
um, it's very much very much uh, establishment based, you know. So I think America suited the the pace and uh, the type of story that I wanted to tell. Now I hope you have been to New York, but have you ever? Well, been- I have. I've been many times. <laughs> I've toured the United States extensively with the books. Good. The books brought me to the United States. <laughs> Now being set in Alabama, did you have you visited Alabama? I don't suppose you would ever dare go back there now. I would go back. Um, I think the <laughs> Alabama Tourist Board are not going to be too happy with me. But <laughs> I think there's a balance in it. You know, the people I, I met, I met good people when I was there. I've been there twice. Um, it is a strange place. You know, I remember, I think maybe the first time I was there, I was driving it, I was driving at night and I saw something, there was a field, and I thought there was a really weird mist in that field. It was like very white, bright, but very low down and moving, but didn't seem fixed to this field. And I said to the guy I was with, what, what is that? And he said, oh, that's, that's a field of cotton. And it was really spooky mm-hmm. to see that. And obviously the whole history of, um, of slavery in the South, you know, with that, there's a lot of blood in that ground. And when you see something like that, and I, I went to a plantation house as well and, and saw a little bit of that. And that all brings home how horrendous that whole situation was. And you don't really appreciate it that much until you've been there and looked at it and seen it. So that's something I, I very much wanted to write about. But in terms of the people, like this is a fictitious county at a fictitious time. I haven't. You know, I haven't done this in a real place. All everything that happens in, in terms of the law and how all of that works and the mechanism of the, the death penalty process is ex- is exactly true. The chair, which is mentioned in the first the first part of the book, is the real electric chair. Yellow Mama is real, and 149 people have been executed in it, and there's still five people die by electric chair in the last year. So it's all of that's real, but it's. I didn't want to sully an entire town's name. And there are people in the town who are good and who do stand up for what they believe in. So I hope it's not a total destruction of Alabama. There are good people in there too um, who are willing to do their bit. Loyal Eddie Flynn fans will be very happy to see some familiar faces in the book, despite the change of location, including Eddie's investigator Block who we mm-hmm. saw in uh, 50-50. And it's great to see a woman playing such a fantastically tough and resourceful role within this kind of book. She's the kind of person who kind of makes other people feel safe. If she's there, then they know they're going to be all right. So was there a particular inspiration behind her character? Yeah. Uh, Block first appears in, in my standalone novel. I have a standalone novel called Twisted which uh, is, is really a book about twists and about mystery writing and a mysterious mystery writer called J.T. LeBeau. But there's a, you know, obviously my, one of my books, there's lots of murders in that. And there was a sheriff's deputy um, called Block. Uh, actually, her character was created in that, in that book. And she's just one of those people, she, um, she doesn't say very much, but when she does say something, it's, it's quite powerful and you really, you really listen because of this character and the way she is, you know, she doesn't get on with, with too many people, but the people she does get on with, they're fiercely loyal to her and she is loyal to them. So she was a very interesting character to write. Um, she, you know, she has some uh, ASD qualities. She's, a, she's gay. So, and she's also incredibly tough and loyal. 
and uh, she will sort of see things that maybe other people have missed, particularly in investigations. She has a very analytical brain and she can sometimes be very funny as well, but to see her warming and getting to know this team more, and so her character develops in this book as well. I, I thought she's a lot of fun to write, Block, and also she, she does carry a, an extremely large handgun, called which she calls Maggie. Now, I fired this gun. It's a Magnum 500, and the, the person who let me, let me shoot it, uh, it was for research purposes, said to me, now look, we're only going to fire this twice because the car- the bullets, the rounds cost like $3 each or something. You know, uh, they're expensive. I said, why do you need a gun this powerful? And he said, well, m- mostly it's made for rangers, uh, people who work out in the forests, because c- it's the only handgun that might be able to take down a grizzly bear. Um, it's one of the most powerful things. Now, I, I'm a big guy. <laughs> I used to do a lot of weightlifting. I'm very strong. And he, he said, look, don't try and have a target. Just try and hold on to this thing. And it, almost, it was like being punched in the hand by Mike Tyson. The kickoff of this thing was unbelievable. And it was a huge fireball the size of a basketball that came out of the, the thing. So I thought, oh, yeah, Block would like this gun. So um, it's a, she's a lot of fun. She is not to be messed with. And uh, I, I really enjoy writing her. And I like that people are, are, are getting to know Block as well. It's worth saying for those who aren't yet familiar with this series, you touched on it earlier on. He's a New York lawyer, but he started out life as a con artist. And I was really interested to hear about how the idea for this backstory came to you. So would you mind telling us a bit about the link you see between con artists and lawyers? Yeah, it sort of hit me one day because I, I used to be a lawyer until about two years ago. Um, I was a civil rights lawyer for a long time. I was cross-examining someone one day and I kind of conned them into revealing a lie. And it, it wasn't through any great legal acumen. Um, it was just a technique and how I did it. So I was quite um, firm with them for a long time, over half an hour, and very strong, hard questions and quite aggressive questioning. And then the killer question, I said, well, look, let's move on. And I asked the question very openly, very softly, as I leaned down to get something out of my bag, so that they would think, okay, well, I've got through this. And we're moving on here, and this is fine. This is not important. So they were relaxed and put their guard down and answered it honestly. And that was the most important question in the whole cross-examination. So that sort of established for me, well, there's a lot of skills that con artists use, misdirection, distraction, persuasion, manipulation. Uh, Those are all skills that that great trial lawyers use. And I've been fortunate to work with a lot of great trial lawyers and I've seen them use these techniques. And I thought, well, that's great. That's, you know, people think, you know, cross-examination is very dramatic and they watch, you know, a few good men and movies like that, which I love, but that's not really realistic. <laughs> and how it's really done is much more subtle, much more fascinating. It's a psychological battle as much as a battle of words. Um, so I, I think people really enjoy the, the courtroom scenes in my books. They're, they're almost like little vignettes in each novel. So I, I, I enjoy writing those a lot. 
It reminded me because there's that Victorian barristers at Edward Marshall Hall who, yes. kind of, yeah, very theatrically would kind of use a handkerchief or something like that. Yeah, he used to, he had, um, when he was at big cases, he would, he had a, a clerk would come in the court with him. Uh, three clerks, actually. One had a big pile of silk handkerchiefs. The other clerk had two big jugs of water. And the other clerk had this mysterious flowery bag. When the, the prosecution were, were in, their, in their full flow, cross-examining the star witness, it was starting to go badly. And there were really damn, damning evidence coming. Marshall Hall would blow his nose on the handkerchiefs, distract the jury. Key points. That didn't work. If it got worse, he spilt the water all over the desk, his papers. And there was a huge commotion. If, if it all went, it was going really bad, he opened the bag. And sorry, you might hear my dog barking there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what happened then was uh, out of the bag, he brought this huge cushion, which he would then blow up. <laughs> it's a huge inflatable cushion because it was well known among the judiciary that Sir Edward Marshall Hall had terrible piles uh, and suffered very badly. And they, would, they wouldn't say anything because they thought the mm. poor man must be suffering here. But the jury didn't know that. And they're just watching this pantomime and not listening to a word of evidence that's going on. Now, you've talked about uh, the courtroom drama within your books. And it's a great tradition. You've, you've mentioned A Few Good Men and also the classic To Kill a Mockingbird, which features significantly within this story. So what is it you think about the, the theatre of a courtroom that makes for such interesting stories? Well, as you say, it is a theatre. A case is like a roller coaster, you know, the very nature of it. Uh, the prosecution calls a witness and they'll say something awful about the defendant and maybe give damning evidence about it. There's a cross-examination, which picks apart what has been said. Maybe puts a different version of events. So the jury is constantly, or should be if they're paying attention, constantly readjusting their mind. The defendant's fortunes go up and down. I think, to me, to see it done well, there's nothing more dramatic. Um, when you, Especially when you know what's going to happen, when you, mm. when you can see there are little doors being closed off here and there very subtly. By, uh, by questioning to lead a witness down an inevitable path to them being um, either proved wrong or proved a liar. That's, that, to me, that's, that's very powerful. And of course, the stakes are incredibly high for everyone involved. It is a great theatre, and it's, it's one I, I, I love to, to play my stories in. While this is your sixth book, am I right in thinking it's the first one that you wrote where you weren't also working as a lawyer at the same time. Yeah, that's right. I was working full time as a lawyer. So I would get up at 6am, get the kids up, get them to school, go to work, come home about six o'clock at night, get some dinner, say hello to the family for a few hours. And then around nine or 10, when everyone went to bed, that's when my writing day would start. I would work for three or four hours. And I did um, five books maybe even six or five and a half doing it that way. And it was tough. So uh, when I got the opportunity then to, to write full time, to take, make that leap, then this, the, this was, I think was the first one that I had written um, completely just as a full-time writer. And I really enjoyed it. It was, it was a good process, I have to say, and a much better balanced life now. 
And so did you find you had great uh, windows of time in your day? You felt guilty that you weren't filling with writing? I always feel guilty when I'm not <laughs> writing. You know, if I'm watching TV, I feel guilty. And if I'm reading, I feel guilty I'm not writing. So there's always that. But yeah, time expands. You'd be amazed the things that I that I do now that are just, you know, seem very important. Uh, you know, it's sort of stopped me from writing. It's been hard during lockdown to try and get a regular writing thing going. It was a bit easier before I would go out to coffee shops and stuff and write. But we, we've moved house now. Now I have my own office and I am able to get, you know, three or four hours work during the day and then more at night. Because I tend to like writing at night. I just like the atmosphere and when it's quiet and stuff. And Obviously, people have got to know you through your very successful novels, but they've also had the opportunity to get to know you through your podcast, uh, Two Crime Writers and a Microphone, which has now gone into treble figures for the amount you've produced. And that's with your co-host and fellow writer, Luca Veste. Could you tell us a bit more about the podcast? We've wound down the podcast now through various things. You neither look at it or I have much time to do it anymore. <laughs> but the episodes are still available. We did about 113 episodes. It was an idea that I had to do. We were one of the first um, sort of literary comedy podcasts, if you like, because we don't take ourselves too seriously. So we wanted to have a conversation with the writer, the uh, same type of conversation we would have with them if we had met them in a festival in a bar. So there's no great literary insight. Um, it's just a conversation. So people can get to know who the writers really are. So we talk as much about writing as we do about, well, what's happening in EastEnders? And what do you do in your spare time? And things like this. So our, uh, the last episode that we did together was um, with Linwood Barclay. And we spent more time talking about the roadworks outside his house than we did about <laughs> his writing or his books. But that's why writers loved that coming on that show you know anyone we asked always came on because they knew a they were going to have a good time they were going to have a laugh and b it's not it's going to be a totally relaxed atmosphere and a conversation among friends yeah. so i really like it for that reason we also did two um festivals to read online festivals which people can find those events on youtube and we had writers the best writers in the world for me we're, we're on that you know we had Anthony Horowitz talking with Don Winslow, hosted by Phil Williams. That was a great event. Two writers who respected each other who had never met and were doing this to raise money for, for charity, for food banks. We had maybe 300 writers almost involved in, in those two festivals. So I'm very proud of those. And it, it continued the atmosphere of the podcast on through that. Mm. But, uh, well, I'm not doing any episodes anymore. Luke and me do the odd one now with, with other writers, but it's still good for, for people to check out. I was just going to very briefly mention, because you've got your books, you've had your podcast series, but that's not the only way we've got to know you over the years, because you've also, perhaps uniquely, featured on the quiz programme Pointless twice once as a member of the public and once on Celebrity Pointless. I just wanted to say hats off to, to have had that as an achievement. There can't be many people who've done that. No, there's only me. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, <laughs> that was great. My wife, some years ago, went through a thing. Oh, I'd love to do a, a quiz show. She loves quiz shows. And I'm terrible at quiz shows. But anyway, so we did Pointless together. Uh, I think it was the very first series. And then uh, Richard Osman, who's a, a fantastic writer now, and people should rush out and get the Thursday Murder Club if they haven't already. 
So Richard, I'd met Richard a few times at various literary things, and he's a lovely guy. So he had asked me to come on the celebrity writers' pointless thing. But it was very nice to be asked on to do it for charity. It is really interesting the way that crime writers seem to be incredibly generous and supportive of each other. That comes down from the writers who are at the top of their game. I once did an event with uh, Lee Child. He did a book launch for me for my second book in New York City. And there was a snowstorm, like it was a real heavy blizzard. And it was a terrible night to launch a book. But Lee came through, you know, he flew in that day because he wasn't in New York. Came, you know, came to the launch and said, you know, well, look, Lawrence Block did this for me. When I was starting out, I'm doing it for you. And come years down the line, you'll do it for someone else. And there is a real thing among, especially among, you know, the, sort of the big name crime writers, the, the real legends of the genre that they were all helped out by the ones who came before them. And it's a real thing. If you get a leg up in this business, the first thing you do is you reach down and you help someone else up too. And that's that's has a, a real impact on me and means a lot to me. Finally, then, can I ask, what are you working on now? Well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm working on another Eddie Flynn at the moment. And I have another book written, completed, uh, done and dusted, uh, which is a standalone so I don't know what one will be out next. Yeah, there's more Eddie Flynn on the way, and there will be a lot more, and I have, I have great plans for that series. I'm absolutely delighted that people have taken Eddie Flynn into their hearts, and I really want to give them more of that and a better book each time. I really enjoyed chatting to Steve and I'm especially jealous of his double appearance on Pointless. And how great is it to hear how supportive crime writers are to up and coming authors? They do seem to be an unusually friendly bunch, which really you might not have expected as they're so often writing about really dark subjects. Okay, so on to the next section of the podcast where we're joined by Michelle from Alton Library to talk about her book recommendation. Hi Michelle and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Yes, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And so, Michelle, tell us, how has it been in Alton Library over the summer? Yeah, it's getting back to normal. Footfalls picking up, summer reading challenge almost at an end, just a couple of weeks now. That's been going really well. More and more people coming back in. So, yeah, it's great. And how's it been with the summer reading challenge, seeing all of the children come in across the summer? Yeah, it's been really good and a lot of it obviously is done online now where the children sort of register on there but still coming back in and still having that excitement when they finish to get their medal and their certificate. So yeah, it's great. That's fantastic. And have you started having activities for adults back again in the library? That's slowly coming back in. Personally, I run a reading group for the visually impaired and we're starting that again hopefully next month. So that's one thing that's definitely coming back. We're hoping to start up a library club with um, sort of the local elderly folk again. Um, so slowly but surely things are coming back. I've noticed actually my calendar for October has never been busy. So I, I reckon people are just beginning. Life is becoming a lot more back to normal again now. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So shall we move on to our book recommendation? And um, Would you like to tell us a bit about the book that you've chosen and why? Okay, so, well, the book that I wanted to talk about today is The End of Men by Christina Sweeney Baird. Now, 
basically it's about a pandemic and this pandemic only affects men and um, I sort of thought oh that sounds quite interesting but I don't really fancy reading about this book about a pandemic you know when with what we're going through but it's great it's really good it's cleverly written and uh, yeah the idea behind it is that there's there's a, a virus a very serious virus that spreads quickly and just affects men women seem to be carriers of this virus and it spreads around the world there's a lot of comparison with covid-19 but it's a book that not only covers desperation and heartbreak but it's so full of hope as well yeah it is extraordinary that although it was published in january this year it was actually written before you know 6 months before we'd even heard of coronavirus back in june 2019 and yet it seems to really hit the nail on the head in describing kind of what we all went through how did you find reading it given what's been going on with our own pandemic yeah it's it's really strange because um, a lot of the terms that she uses um, you sort of think oh yeah social distancing i mean i didn't really know what that was before it was sort of talked about last year and a lot of the way that they they work trying to get together teams and also the isolation of preventing people catching the virus all that sort of stuff yeah so many comparisons and it is quite amazing to think that the author didn't know what was going on you know it's almost like well that's a bit spooky almost really <laughs> It does really strike a chord, but it, of course, isn't about the coronavirus. The virus in the book is a lot more aggressive. It spreads a lot more quickly. And the push for vaccines and the response of key work is starkly different to kind of what we've gone through. And so I think while I was reading it, I definitely had that kind of feeling of, thank God it wasn't like that. You know, do you find it somewhat comforting to read as well? Yeah, I think so. I think when the um, first begin to realise that something's not quite right here, you know, that the the speed that somebody went downhill rapidly, that was quite frightening. And yeah, you do sort of think, crikey, I mean, COVID-19 has just been awful. But yeah, I mean, the virus in the book is a million times worse, isn't it, really? I did think there are some really interesting themes that run throughout the novel which we'll come on to talk about. And beyond the huge topic of the pandemic, she also takes time to explore the idea of a world dominated by women increasingly, and where you can see some sort of issues of gender imbalance finally uh, being corrected. I thought it was quite interesting that she picked up on some of the issues, which a previous guest on the podcast, Caroline Criado Perez, she highlighted, like things like uh, wrongly sized seatbelts and poorly fitting safety equipment which at the moment makes women much more vulnerable. And these all these topics she explored in the book, was that something that you found interesting as well? Yeah, definitely, definitely. That was one of the things that I picked up. It was just imagining a world where at the moment, a lot of things are designed around the male form. Like you say, like PPE that's designed for a standard form and it could be I mean, I can remember seeing pictures on sort of social media of nurses and doctors wearing huge coats and things that obviously didn't fit them, but because they were one size fits all, a lot of perhaps smaller women, for example, were engulfed by this thing. So 
Yeah, and she makes the point in the book that when you've got PPE that's designed for you, that fits properly, it could mean that there's going to be lower accidents at work, perhaps, and the ramifications of that are quite far-reaching, really. Oh, well, the fact that women are, at the moment, far more likely to be seriously injured in a car accident because safety equipment is designed for default, which is the man. But yes, as women take power in this book, all these things get readdressed. I found it interesting as well when, when I was reading it, seeing that there were, there were so many male characters that still aren't confronting the inequalities that are going on, sort of still acting as if they are ruling the world. There's such, such dry humour in the book, as well as the drama. I thought that, that was quite a nice touch to it as well. I think my, one of my favourite parts was the structure, the way that we jump from character to character, and, and sometimes we, we kind of tend to stick to this main group of women, but we sort of jump across the globe and, and sort of see how the pandemic is, is affecting people from like overseas and in different situations and in different roles and different jobs. And the, you get this real sense of range to the impact of it. How did you find the structure? Yeah, I thought it was great, actually. And I particularly liked the way it was written because it was just so easy to read in respect that you had emails, letters, communications. And it was almost as if it was a collection of thoughts and essays about the the feelings of the people at the time. I think that was it was very clever the way that was written because obviously everyone had different experiences going through this and it just seemed to bring it all together very nicely in that way. And like you say, it was a global pandemic and you did sort of hear from people in Canada, I think, you know, across the world. We should say it is pretty much focused on the UK and specifically actually Scotland is Mm. quite a centre for the book. And I did, I was reading an article that she'd written a few days ago that was saying originally the first draft had far more characters and covered an even wider worldview. But she had an editor that said, actually, you're better off to make your cast a little bit smaller so that we can really get under the skin of those characters a bit more. And I I think that was probably a good idea, as for me, it was just the right balance. But there's obviously, when we're talking about it, anyone who's read The Power by Naomi Alderman is going to be thinking, oh, this sounds familiar. And it does tread a lot of the same territory. The idea of something really drastic affecting the world, which overthrows the gender power balance. And I did think there was quite an interesting, I wondered whether she knowingly did this, because in The Power there is this kind of idea that it's written as an academic or part of an academic thesis. And there is a a reference to this in The End of Men as well, which I thought was quite an interesting device. I really loved the kind of political commentary in the book. I was really quite surprised by how in-depth into sort of emotion it goes as well. I think it's Catherine is the main character that sticks out to me. You know, you, you have these like really dry, funny characters in Amanda and Lisa. And then you jump to Catherine, who just absolutely wrapped in grief. And several times through the Catherine chapters, I find myself really tearing up. And they were just heartbreaking. Were there, were there any parts that, that really stood out to you? Yeah, probably the same, really. I mean, um, I think just the thought of watching your husband or your father or your son and knowing that they're going to die because there's there's nothing you can do. It was just, yeah, it just makes you feel quite desperate. But again, you, you can always take glimmers of hope from that as well, I think. Um, so I wouldn't want people to think it's a sad book. 
because essentially it's not really. Yeah, it's a journey through grief as much as it is about the grief, isn't it? She does she does sort of go on the, the ups and downs of it and it is there's definitely hope at the end, I think. Yeah, it's the kind of subject matter I think I would find impossible to read, but I did read it and I'm glad I did. I, I also thought that motherhood was a really strong theme within the book, not just on the, the huge loss these mothers feel, but also about the struggle for, with childlessness generally and the sense of kind of identity that you get from being a parent and the separation, the, the rift that they get between parents and those people who can't have children. Did you think this was something the author was keen to discuss in the book as well? Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine so. I think she got that across quite well. There's, I think, is it is it Catherine's friend and the interaction between them, and they have quite a, quite a sort of not strange relationship, but quite a, a strained relationship in, in in some cases because of the child issue, and also the fact that you have to face up to the fact that with the majority of the male population being wiped out how is life going to continue and it is quite a thing to ponder. I, I enjoyed too the reference to the incels so she was kind of really exploring all the the implications of this sort of gender power balance and how incels were thinking it was just a great conspiracy for women to get mm. more power which I thought was quite an interesting idea. But again I, I don't think it's not a very anti-men book and I wouldn't want that to come across either because it's not because there's a lot of lot of hopeful pieces about the future of men from it you know so we've been talking about the end of men by Christina Sweeney Baird but were there any of the other books that you'd like to recommend well I've just I've just finished the 100 years of Lenny and Margot and that, that's available on the library catalogue and I've also just finished a very interesting book called Animal by Lisa Tadeo and that's only available on Borrow Box at the moment, but it's got a very striking anti-heroine in it. The first one has got an intriguing title, and if you've recommended it, I'm sure it's going to be good. So I, <laughs> uh, I shall try both of those. And thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again in Alton Library very soon. Great, thank you very much. Summer may be winding down, but our library events are just getting started. We have Barnstormers Comedy Night returning on the 15th of October, and a talk with two local crime thriller authors on the 16th of October. Check out the What's On page on the Hampshire Library's website to find out more. You'll also find more details there about some of our arts and craft courses, as well as business workshops with our learning and libraries courses continuing throughout the autumn. Our author of the month of September is Anne Tyler. You'll be seeing her novels on display throughout our libraries this month and posts celebrating her work on the Hampshire Library's blog. She's best known for the Pulitzer Prize winning Breathing Lessons and The Accidental Tourist, which was adapted into a Hollywood movie. And of course, we have our monthly Borrow Box Unlimited titles. These are ebooks and audiobooks that you can download or listen to straight away, even if loads of other people have downloaded them. One of this month's titles is Buried, the first book in Linda LaPlante's new thriller series following Detective Jack Wah. I've really loved Linda LaPlante ever since the Prime Suspect series with Helen Mirren back in the early 90s. Anyway, one of our unlimited titles for this month is also our online book club's choice, as we'll be discussing Secrets of Santorini by Patricia Wilson. It's a mystery story about a woman who goes back to the island of her birth to reconnect with her estranged past. You can download the book for free from Hampshire Library's Borrow Box service and join the conversation through the Hampshire Library's Facebook group. 
Thank you to BorrowBox for supporting the Love Your Libraries podcast. And thank you for listening. I'm Isaac Fabashi. And I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. 